Uh, Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. If you would open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Luke. We're continuing our series. It's getting close to the end of the preaching and power of our Lord Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Luke. Today we're going to be talking about the transfiguration uh, in a few minutes. We'll get to that. One of the cultural landmarks of my childhood and uh, for those of my generation happened in 1956 with the television showing of the movie The Wizard of Oz. I still remember watching it with my mom and dad and my sisters sitting in the living room. It was a big deal. It's the story of a a little girl lost in a strange land and the story's plot follows her efforts to find her way back home. A child lost trying to find its way home. I was immediately absorbed. I asked Claire, I said, what do you remember about the Wizard of Oz? And she immediately said, the wicked witch of the West and her socks and those flying monkeys. And I said, yes, oh my goodness, those flying monkeys freaked me out. They could swoop down and snatch you up and whisk you away to who knows where. I remember running and hiding behind my father's chair. Anyway, through many adventures, Dorothy and her friends follow the yellow brick road and finally get to the Emerald City where the Wizard of Oz was because she'd been told that the wonderful Wizard of Oz could help her get home. And when at last they get an audience with the great wizard, it is terrifying. He's this huge, angry, floating head with smoke and a booming voice and... They were just scared silly. But while he's ranting and raving and they're standing there shaking in their boots, Dorothy's little dog, Toto, remember, he runs up and he pulls back the curtain. And behold, behind the curtain is a little old man frantically pulling levers and pushing buttons and speaking into a microphone and he's manipulating the whole thing. He's just projecting a an image, and it's all a bunch of smoke and mirrors. The wonderful Wizard of Oz is a fraud. And so we have this phrase, pulling back the curtain. And it means revealing the true identity of someone. By the way, just to finish out the story, in case you never heard it, uh, Dorothy does get home. She just clicks her heels together, those little red shoes, and says three times, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, and she's back in Kansas, and it was a happy ending. But that phrase, pulling back the curtain, has become a a fairly common theme in novels and movies where you've got some person, some significant person whose identity is shrouded in mystery. And as the plot of the movie or the novel unfolds, the question is invariably asked, but who are you really? And at some point, the curtain is pulled back 
and the person's true identity is revealed. You follow me? Well, along with discipleship, this is really one of the main things running through the Gospel of Luke. It's this question about the true identity of Jesus. So far as we've gone through the gospel, we've seen that the demons are in no doubt as to who he is. I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Jesus told that demon to shut up and to come out of him because it wasn't time for Jesus to be fully revealed. That's the demons. But people, they're not so sure who they're dealing with because Jesus' true identity, his full identity, was shrouded in mystery. Remember after the miraculous catch of fish, Peter, a fisherman, is in the boat there and he feels strangely self-conscious and he says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He knew he was in the presence of someone unique, someone different, but he wasn't exactly sure who it was he was dealing with. Well, here in chapter 9, of Luke's gospel, this theme comes round again and it actually comes to a head. That question is raised. Who are you really? King Herod was extremely curious. In verse 9 it says, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Was it John raised from the dead? When the curtain is pulled back on Jesus, who will we see? Well, let's begin reading. We're actually going to back up a little bit and start in verse 18 that was covered by Jose last week. And starting now in Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, we read, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Who are you really? Well, my friends, there's no simple answer to this question. There's no simple answer. 
And that's evidenced by the fact that in Scripture you have many names, many titles, and many terms that are used to describe Jesus, to give testimony to him. I mean, besides the very familiar Lord and Savior, you have all of the I am sayings. That he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the Great Shepherd. He's the shepherd and bishop of our souls. He's the lamb of God. He's the lion of Judah. He's the solid rock. He's the redeemer. And I could go on and on. I've seen posters completely filled with all the names of Jesus. And I'm not sure that they even exhaust those names, those posters. But apart from the familiar Lord and Savior, a case can be made for three titles that we see here in Luke chapter 9. You could call them the big three. They are Christ, Son of Man, and Son of God. We're going to look at them in order to try to get a grip on the identity of Jesus Christ. First of all, Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Kind of like you have a last name and a first name. His last name was not Christ. Christ is actually a title, and it's the royal title. Jesus asked his disciples who the crowd said he was, and they said various things, Elijah, one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of all the apostles, said, the Christ of God. Last week, we heard Jose explain that this familiar word is the Greek translation of the Hebrew for Messiah, Hebrew Mashiach, Greek Christos, and it's a royal title associated with the great King David, the greatest of all the kings of Israel. So Christ is Messiah, son of David, who was expected to restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory. At this time, Israel had no former glory. It was dominated by Rome. And the Messiah was expected to come and restore that former glory. But the expectation of the people of that time was not going to be met by Messiah Jesus, at least not at this time. Because this royal figure was going to come and bring a kingdom not of this world. Christ, you see, Messiah came first as a suffering servant and his goal was not to reign over a small piece of real estate at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, in the words of our friend Scott Redd, he had bigger fish to fry. He had come as a king to conquer sin and death and Satan. It was to conquer this enemy triumvirate which has held us in bondage. This is much bigger than the enemy of Rome. But in order to do this, Christ said, he must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must be killed and also raised. But that's not what the people expected. So Jesus was not exactly the kind of messianic king that the disciples were hoping for. But Jesus said, that's the kind of Christ I am. I'm going to suffer and be rejected and killed. You still want to follow me? 
Because immediately after that, he says in verse 23, to the disciples and to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then forfeits his soul? Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily, follow me. That's what we call the cost of discipleship. You say, well, wait, wait a minute. I, I thought salvation was free. Well, it is, but it can only be received by those who trust Jesus in everything. In other words, God will put it in your hands, but if there's something else already in your hands, uh, you're going to have to get rid of that so you can hold it. Those who lose their lives for Christ's sake, are the ones who really trust him. Wait a minute, hold on. I thought salvation was you believe in Jesus and then you have your sins forgiven and then you go to heaven. Weren't we just singing about that? Well, that's true. But what Jesus is giving us here is what we call the fine print. You know, on your phone, you get all these terms and conditions, that those little things, and you're supposed to check the box that says, I've read all the terms and conditions and I agree to it, and you check the box. Did you really read that? No, you didn't. You didn't read it. I don't know how many times I've checked those boxes and what I have sold my soul to. And if they wanted to call me in on it, I'd probably, be, but, but that's what we do. We don't read the fine print. But Jesus here gives the terms and conditions. It's called counting the cost. It's what it means to believe in Jesus. It's what it means to confess him as Lord. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And to call Jesus Lord means that he's, well, Lord, boss, the one in charge. Not you, not me. Now, Jose expressed this last week very effectively, I thought, in his own voice. It was very sobering. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Take up your cross daily. Taking up the cross means you expect to die. You could die. Jesus did die. Virtually all the apostles died martyrs' deaths. This is deadly, serious stuff. Just ask some of the Christians in northern Nigeria. So when the question comes, who are you really? Peter answers for them all correctly when he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, who will suffer and die. And Jesus says, would you like to follow me? And as if that's not enough, he goes on to say, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And notice that term, Son of Man. All right, we've talked about Christ. Let's talk about the Son of Man. This enigmatic term is used over 80 times in the gospel 
And virtually all of those times, it's Jesus using that term to refer to himself in the third person. What does it mean? Well, it certainly refers to his humanity, son of man. True, he is a man. When Jesus says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, that was an expression of his weakness as a man. So, first of all, it refers to his humanity, but it also refers to his authority. Because if you remember, when the paralytic was let down through the ceiling, Jesus pronounced his sins forgiven, and then he made the comment, he said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise and walk, and the man did. Jesus claimed to have the authority on earth to forgive sins, something that only God can do. And he also referred to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So besides referring to his humanity, son of man term refers to authority. But as Jesus uses it here in the passage that I just read, when the son of man comes in his glory, Jesus is actually taking us forward, forward to the end of time, to the end times when the son of man comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's triple glory. That's a lot of glory. There was a point in Jesus' trial where he gives reference to this because when he fast forwards to the end of the age, this is what we call the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the last judgment, the final judgment. During Jesus' trial, he was pointedly asked by the chief priest, who are you really? And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. He deserves death. Well, what was it that Jesus said that would provoke such a strong reaction? Well, he was quoting from a well-known passage in Daniel chapter 7, a chapter about the Son of Man. Let's look at it. Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. Daniel had a vision. And he says, As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court, for that's what it was, sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is judgment day. You get the idea. To say this is awe-inspiring is a tremendous understatement. But then Daniel continues. 
And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed in distinction from every other kingdom that ever was or ever will be. And when Jesus quoted this before the high priest, he was saying, I am the Son of Man. My kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that shall not pass away. I am the one to whom God the Father, the Ancient of Days, has committed the final judgment. You are judging me, I will be judging you. No wonder the high priest tore his robes and said he deserves to die. Now here in our Luke 9 passage, Jesus is telling those who consider following him the terms of discipleship. And he says, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words, of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. On judgment day, those who have rejected the Son of Man will themselves be rejected. By, by, but by implication, those who are not ashamed of him and not ashamed of his words, they won't be rejected. They'll be accepted. So you can see how Jesus is raising the stakes extremely high. This Son of Man is a powerful Figure. He is what we call an end times figure, an eschatological figure. He says, I'm going to suffer and die. You want to follow me? Make up your mind. It could mean the same for you, but that is not the final word. I will not only suffer and die, I will also be raised and I will return. And when I do, it will be in glory. And if you have followed me, you too will be raised and you also will appear with me in glory. Uh, take heart, in other words, disciples. Rejection and suffering and death are not the final word. Glory is. That's the Son of Man, a glorious figure. And so then what follows right after this is a sneak preview of that glory, a pulling back of the curtain, if you will. And we won't be disappointed like Dorothy and her friends. Chapter 9, verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So here's what happened. After these sayings, about eight days later, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And he takes with him Peter and John and James. And as he is praying to his heavenly Father, the appearance of his face changes. It's altered. Other gospel accounts tell us that it shines like the sun. And they use the term that he was transfigured, metamorphosed. Hmm. So this event is known as the transfiguration. And it's not only his face, but his clothes also become dazzlingly bright. And then two men appear, and not two ordinary guys, no, Moses and Elijah and they're having a conversation with him. And the topic is Jesus' departure. And literally the Greek word is his exodus. It's interesting. Brings up some thoughts about Moses, doesn't it? The exodus that he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're obviously talking about his coming crucifixion. The connection with the Exodus, which is the greatest redemptive act in the Old Testament, is about to be fulfilled on a universal cosmic scale as Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, dies for the sins of the world. This is going to be fulfilled by the Christ, the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God. Now, somehow, the disciples are asleep through all this. But when they become fully awake, they see Jesus' glory and they see Moses and Elijah who are in the process now of leaving. Somehow they were able to recognize them. And as they are going away, it's not entirely clear why, but Peter suggests to Jesus that they build three tents to mark the moment perhaps. It could have had something to do with the Feast of Tabernacles, the building of tents or or booths. But while Peter's speaking, something else happens. A cloud comes and overshadows them, and the disciples become very afraid. And then a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was there alone. What 
is going on here? Well, the curtain has been pulled back to give us the full and the final answer to the question, who are you really? Because the Heavenly Father presents us with divine confirmation. This is my Son. This is the Son of God, the Chosen One. Listen to Him. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. They testify to Jesus. He's the one they wrote about. They're not on the same level with Jesus personally. They are to be respected for they speak for God. They're not to be rejected because their testimony is true. But after the Father speaks, only Jesus remains. He alone is the Son of the Father, the Chosen One, and the one to be listened to. So this testimony of the Father is divine confirmation. And the confirmation is accompanied by a glorious manifestation of the presence of God. And Jesus' glory emanates from him, from his face. In other words, his glory is inherent with him, just as the Son has an inherent glory. But the Son was created by God through the Son of God. So Jesus' glory far exceeds the glory of the brightest star. Glory is something that is inherent to God. It's his manifest presence. And it's all confirmed by this glory cloud, which is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So here on the mount, you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all giving testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. That's the answer to the question, who are you? It's not a simple answer. I mean, how can the Son of God be described with mere words? It's impossible. But true things can be said about him. He is Christ. He is Son of Man. He is Son of God. He is glorious. Though, isn't it fascinating, during his time on earth, that glory was veiled. He didn't operate throughout his earthly ministry in this dazzling appearance. For the most part, he looked like you and me. And it wasn't perceived, except little by little, as his identity is revealed and as the curtain is pulled back. So what does this mean for us? How are we to understand it? I mean, should we pray that we have a vision of his glory like this? Are we substandard Christians because we haven't had the experience of a Peter or a John or a James? Well, you know, maybe Peter can help us out here a little bit. If you know anything about the Apostle Peter, he was not afraid to fail. And he made some major boo-boos. I mean, even here in this event, his inept suggestion never even warrants an answer. Now, the, the divine voice seems to 
be a rebuke. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. You know, often when my wife and I are coming home from a time of fellowship with others, we'll ask each other, uh, did I say anything dumb tonight? I imagine if Peter was driving home with his wife after this, she'd have said, uh, you know, dear, you really need to read the room a little bit better. Uh, but even though Peter often failed, he was not a failure. Now, he always got back up on his horse. And in his first epistle, he writes, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Is that you? Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, yet you believe in him. How is it that you believe in him? God has given you eyes of faith to see him. The crucifixion was a public event. Everyone saw it. Herod, Pilate, Centurion, those who mocked him. But the resurrection was reserved for the eyes of faith. And if you believe in Jesus, you have been given eyes of faith. Later, Peter records in his second letter this transfiguration experience when he writes, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. Something more sure? The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter saying here? We were eyewitnesses. Is there something more sure than your own eyes? Peter seems to indicate it's the Word of God. It's Scripture, the prophetic Word. Though he, as though he, as an eyewitness, thought that there could be something more. Now, it's very doubtful here that, that Peter is trying to downplay the actual experience, the event of the transfiguration. But what he's saying was that was his experience, and he's an honest and a true eyewitness, but that happened to be written down in Scripture for our benefit. Experiences that we have can fade over time, but those that are preserved by the Holy Spirit and written down for us, we can look at them anytime we want because we have the word of these eyewitnesses. And it is a true word. We read, we believe, 
we're edified. How is it that you have come to love Jesus? How is it that you've come to believe in him? Because of the testimony of faithful witnesses. We're strengthened as we learn from Scripture, from the law and the prophets, from the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, from the writings of the Old and New Testaments. We learn, we believe, we're strengthened, and we come to know more and more who Jesus is. Right now you're sitting under the Word of God proclaimed to you. Why are you doing this? Because somehow you believe that it's going to strengthen and encourage a faith that you already have. Otherwise, you're wasting your time sitting here today. But we know that it's important. We know that the word must be believed. It must be proclaimed because this word of God tells us that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of Man, the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead, that he is the Son of Man who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Peter talks about giving heed to this like a light shining in a dark place. My friends, we are in a dark place place right now. This world is a dark place. Now, I'm not talking about the sun and the birds and the animals and the fall foliage and the water. I mean, that's all a wonderful part of creation. I'm talking about this world as it is a system in opposition to God. Jesus said, the world hated me. If you follow me, the world will hate you also. That's actually coming to pass more and more than it ever has, at least in my life. This is a dark place. Where's the light shining? It's shining through our Lord Jesus Christ, and he comes to us in the pages of Scripture as we read, as we believe, as we hear the preaching of the Word and participate in the sacraments of the church, which are signs and seals to strengthen the faith of believers. I want to speak a word to those of you that may be fearful because as you look at the world around you and see what's happening and the increasing decadence, it can be very troubling and you can wonder what in the world is going on. Jesus said, yeah, the Son of Man will be rejected, will suffer, will die, and the third day be raised. And if you want to follow me, hmm, Better deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. It will mean the same things for you. But take heart, because when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, he will right every wrong. That's what we have to look forward to. Let us train our eyes on our Lord Jesus and receive strength for the journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing to us who Jesus is. Thank you for pulling the curtain back and telling us with the voice from heaven that Jesus is your Son, the Son of God, that he is the chosen one. And thank you for telling us to listen to him. We want to listen to him. We want to be encouraged and strengthened and exhorted and when necessary reproved by him even as Peter was reproved 
we're all going to have our times of failure, times when we could do better. But we thank you that your grace is greater even than our sin. We thank you that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace that is manifest to us in his life and death and resurrection. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.